Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year to you. And I can't believe I'm going to say, what is this, 2000? What year is this, 2021? That's a big deal. John chapter 6, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse um, 20, 25. So 5,000 men plus women and children have been fed by the miracle of Jesus. There's leftover food. The next day he will teach them. And verse 25 and following begins that next day. All right. When they found them on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Amen. That is the word of God. Let's pray. So simple, day by day, Father, these things we pray to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. One cannot think well, love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. That is what Adeline Stevenson wrote. Her point, food, good food, is really important. What is one of the first questions a doctor will ask their patient? How's your appetite? Teachers understand how hard it is for their students to to learn with an empty stomach. And on a lighter note, there's a Jewish writer named David Minette, and he said something like this, we must have pie. Stress cannot exist in the presence of pie. (laughs) And there you go. Now, food is on the mind of everyone here in chapter 6. 
So to help us understand the context, let's begin with a few questions. First, if you asked a four- or five-year-old child in America, where does their food come from? Most would probably say from the grocery store or from Walmart or Target, something like that. But it's a noteworthy reality that people in Western society think of and speak of food in a way which almost no one in earlier times and earlier cultures would, would ever think or speak of. You see, the answer they would say would be our food comes from plants and animals or from the farm. Another question, what is the staple diet of people in America? Well, that question is pretty much impossible to answer. It would be extremely diverse, and how can you even try? Our taste differs. Our food supply is is wide and it's rich. It'd be impossible to answer what is a staple diet of America in any absolute way. However, for millions upon millions of people in our world right now, they would answer that question, what is our staple diet? Rice or rice and fish. In ancient Israel, on the time of Jesus Christ, the answer to what was their staple diet would be an easy one, bread or bread and fish. So those words from them have a completely different set of association than they would have for us. For us, bread is easy and it's everywhere. For them, not so much. Another question, what would happen to our food if there was some devastating drought or flood in our region? The answer would be, well, prices would probably go up a bit. Food would have to be flown in from other places. If there's a, you know, if there's a freeze in Florida, uh, we can get oranges from Brazil. You see, the problem is pretty easy to solve. And we should thank God that we don't have to think in terms of starvation really at all when those types of things happen as they, as they will. However, for virtually every person in the time of Jesus Christ, and frankly for most of history, their food supply was no more than roughly 50 miles away from their home. So if there was a drought or there was a flood, that could mean starvation. Final question, why do you work? Okay, well, we work to earn money. Okay, why? Well, to buy stuff and to make life go and to make life better all around. That's good, wonderful. However, in the time and place of Jesus, 85% of the average wage earner's money went to buy food, which means they literally worked in order just to eat. Now, again, we really don't have that line of thought right now in America. We spend just under, this was 2018, we just spend under 10% of our income on food. Okay, so think, 85% of your income on food, 85% of your workday just to eat? Okay, so why do I begin that way? And that takes us to our first point, bread and work. You see, I begin this way to make us not feel bad about our abundant food supply. I mean, that would be wrong. Our food supply now, as always, comes from a gracious gift from God. So to live in a time and place as we do, to not really have to worry too much about food other than who's going to cook it and who's going to get it, that's a gift from God. To not have to stress over, as Jesus said, that we shouldn't stress over our common needs so that we can use our mind for other things, that's a gift. So I begin this way to simply say that when the Bible was written and when Jesus was speaking, he was talking into a culture which thought about food 
a whole lot differently than we do now. And the symbolism here used by Jesus depends on us understanding that and be able to associate that correctly. So you see, when Jesus speaks of bread in chapter 6 of John's gospel, there is a totally different understanding there than it would be for us here. So when Jesus says, if your Bible is open, verse 35, verse 33, verse 48, verse 51, verse 58, I am the bread of life. We got to think our way into that time, into that place. Bread and fish were two staple foods for Jesus' listeners. Bread was the dominant of the two, and Jesus just got through feeding them, 5,000 of them plus, in the opening part of that chapter. Now, I want you to think with me. After that meal, on a practical level, that must have meant so much for the people there. I mean, how marvelous of Jesus, since 85% of their income, 85% of their workday was spent on food, and Jesus just dropped them the equivalent of a day off, you know, and a gift card to Panera Bread. Whole families ate free that day. That's a big deal. They literally had to work to eat, but that day, in the presence of Jesus, they rested and they ate. No work. Only rest. And that's going to come up a lot in this chapter. So again, bread was life to the listeners of Jesus. They worked really hard for it. To the average person in Palestine, their whole life revolved around getting bread, working for bread, so they could eat the bread. Work to live, meaning they lived as if they were their own bread of life. They lived pretty much as if they were their own bread of life. Now, you have to add to that something else. You have to add what the average Jewish person would be learning in the religious services from the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in their synagogues week by week at this time. What was their message? Well, go read the Gospels. It was the same old thing. Work to earn God's favor. Work to earn God's blessing. Work to become righteous in God's sight. Work to feel better about yourself and how you relate to God. Work if you want to be right with God. Remember now, again, the meticulous nature of the tried obedience of 613 laws in the Torah, not to mention the Jewish man-made requirements that they threw on top of that law. I mean, their religion was like a bull in a china shop. You're going to mess up. It's inevitable. So their messages were, here's what to do to work, and they just kept coming. So they heard nothing about the purposeful condemning power of God's law. So that only the Messiah could do for them what they needed. They were under thoughts, okay, that Messiah is going to come, but, you know, he's going to be a political one, and he's going to make us great again. Nothing about the impossibility of perpetual perfect obedience, which was the standard God required, and they could not supply. Nothing about how they could not work hard enough to secure anything from God based on those works. Their works, as Isaiah said, were like dirty rags. Nothing about not relating to God through their works. Nothing about how they could not keep themselves and maintain themselves in the covenant, what they would need, nor in the new covenant, which offered substitute, right? There's going to be a substitute which God will provide, peace with God through the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the, the, the offering God himself will provide to save them. Okay, so they heard the stories of God's rescue. But again, it was mostly in terms of temporal or political for them. You know, get rid of the Romans, make Israel great, we'll be fine. You just get that for us and we're going to be great. 
And of course, if you worked hard enough, and if you obeyed close enough, then God will, excuse me, he will bless you. But it misrepresented God's truth from God's word. Indeed, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. This old covenant ministry, this ministry, verse 7, brought death. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 9, brings condemnation. And again, remember in Romans 7, the preaching of works with no cross and no substitute only secures to intensify personal disobedience. That's what Paul says. If you think about it, that's why the Pharisees were so judgmental and so evil and really like they were just not happy with themselves. Romans 5.20, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. How? By sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So yes, the Bible is filled with practical exhortations and commands, of course, but they are always connected to foundationally and the, the empowering truth of the finished work of Christ. What did Jesus say? I am truth. Everything about truth has to run through me. So where the essential proclamation is not what Christ has done, but what we ought to do or need to do, that is preaching the law rather than Christ. That is a Christless, gospel-deficient, and only increases despair, as Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 5 tells us, increases our anxiety, or Romans 2, increases our self-righteousness. Because it's not focused on Christ and his work. The focus is always on us and our work. Christ is buried away. A gospel deficient practical sermon does not empower victorious Christian living. But self-righteous, self-sovereign people. And self-righteous people go to hell. The Bible is so clear. The law on its own. What they were hearing week by week in the times of Christ... They had, it had no power to fulfill what they said it needed to happen. The only thing the Bible calls power in the New Testament is the grace of Christ in the gospel. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation in every one of its tenses. It is the proclamation of grace. We're going to learn this next week. To Titus 2.11 and 12. Even though it's counterintuitive, grace is what changes people to obey God. And you see, that was not their world. And let's be honest, sometimes it's not our world either. Read the Gospels. So for the majority of Jesus' listeners, we'll call them the 99 percenters, at the end of the sermon they heard, the only person who could be possibly applauded by the listener was the person who thought, I'm nailing that, I'm nailing that, I'm nailing that. Or the person said, I promise I'm going to start nailing it next week. Just give me some time and I'm going to nail it. Now, all that being said, is it any wonder what we read that as Jesus tells them that he himself is God's bread, he is God's bread from heaven, they just turn back to work, work, work. Verse 25, when they found them on the other side of the lake, they asked them, Rabbi, when did you get there? That's the context. Notice that Jesus does not respond to their question. Rather, he simply challenges their motives. Verse 26, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, 
but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Okay, so of course they saw the sign on one level, but they ate the sign, right? But they ate too fast. That's what my mother used to tell me. She said, Joe, you eat too fast. Slow down, slow down. They ate too fast. They didn't see the significance of the bread they had. They didn't see who it pointed to, and they were missing the big picture. They were seeing the miracle, and they were seeing it in worldly terms, temporary. You know, there's a guy who, who could mega multiply their bread. He could terrifically cut down our work week, turf out the Romans, make life for us far, far better. Think of it, right? 85% of their work day is bread. Get the bread. Jesus waves his hand, and there is lots and lots of bread. No wonder, if you look at your Bible verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6, no wonder they wanted to make him king by force. But they couldn't see, so Jesus gives them more. Right? He wants to let them know they, they, they were not just made for this life. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils. In other words, get past the temporary. But for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now Jesus' point is that they are ready, they are to be ready to receive the spread of life. But they hear the word work. As in, we are ready to work, just tell us what our work is, tell us what to do. And again, they're used to this work thing. Verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, that's a synagogue 101 sermon. That's basic, that's what they said. Okay, what do we need to do to do the works God requires? Tell us what to do. So my son's been home for a couple of weeks, he left yesterday he, he was off from work for two weeks, but one day he had to work like half a day. So he's a computer science engineer, and he works on his computer, so he's at the kitchen table, <laughs> and he's working. But all he's doing is this. I'm walking around, Nicole's walking around, Lindsay's walking around, and all we see is, is this. And I'm like, Jared, are you working? He goes, yeah, I'm working. I said, could you do us a favor? And I said, what? Could you just go like, just, you know, to show us that you're actually working. You make a lot of money. Can you just, you know, show us that you're doing something? That's his day. Not that. but (laughs) You read verse 28. There's a lot of humor, uh, hubris there. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of self-importance. The, the feeling of superiority, uppiness, self-righteousness. Tell me what to do, Jesus. Right? We have this intrinsic ability to meet any challenge that Jesus might give them. So go ahead. Set it out. Tell us what to do. We can do this. Look at his response. Verse 29. Okay, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. That's our first point. Bread and work. Now, we can't be too hard on them because this is us apart from Jesus Christ. We are all by nature legalists and we are all by nature self-righteous. All they've known is work. They were used to being their own bread of life. 85, again, 85% of their work was for food. They would go into the synagogue, work, work, work. That was their diet, but it was all empty calories. No nutrition. That's a lot of pressure. Where's the relief? Where's the rest? Second point, believe and rest. What you must do, Jesus says, look at your Bibles there, is believe. Believe in the one he has sent. This is what you must do. In other words, Jesus immediately goes Christ-centered on them. He goes gospel on them. 
Jesus makes it as it should be. It's all about him. They think only in terms of creature comforts. He focuses on something infinitely better himself. He says, this is your work, to believe in the one who God has set. You see that word, believe? Pistios, excuse me, pistio-o. That's the Greek word, pistio-o. It's a weird word, right? It means entrust. It means, it means, it means to make one responsible for you. That's what Jesus is saying. To believe, make me responsible for you. Rest. All right, so they hear that, and he's like, we need some accreditation here, some approval. Verse 30, their reply, what sign will you give that we may see it and and make you responsible for us, believe you? What shall we do? What, What will, excuse me, what will you do? And they give Jesus a hint. Again, your Bible, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You understand in the flow of what's being said here, the the Jesus bread miracle brought to their minds the manna miracle in the desert. How God provided manna in the desert via Moses. And they they had seen that thing a day ago. And now they're like, you know what, I'd like to see that again. Do it again. It would be another no 85% work day. That would be good. And if that happened, it would testify in their mind that Jesus was the Messiah. So this was like kids saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. Jesus, validate yourself, meet our temporary needs, do it again. But verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. But it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, he wants their eyes off any human mediator, especially in the past. And he wants their eyes on God, who is the source of all the provision given. And then Jesus changes the focus of provision. Remember, that's where they were thinking temporary uh, security, temporary bread. Verse 31, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread of heaven is Jesus. He gives life. So yeah, he provided, you know, for 5,000 people. And now Jesus says the bread which fed them there and the manna which fed them back then, then, that he was that bread. He himself is bread from God. He himself is life from God. He nourishes us, if you would, in our spiritual life. He hasn't explained just yet how he will, but right now he just drops the claim. Now, this is important. He's done this all through John's gospel. Jesus said that he is the serpent from the book of Numbers, as he's lifted up on the cross. Jesus said he was the vine of God. Jesus said, this is John 10, he was the good shepherd, which lays down his life for the sheep. He claimed that he was was so much of the physical structures of Judaism, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the temple, all pointed to one direction, all pointing to him. Now, if you think about it, that, in part, helps us understand our whole Bible, all pointing to him. But what Jesus is doing here is he's showing how Christ-centered, how cross-centered this revelation is of Jesus being the bread of life and the true bread of heaven. So in the same way God provided bread from heaven in the old covenant, he has provided bread in the new covenant with just one major difference. Look at your Bible, verse 35. Eat this bread and you will never go hungry again. Think about that. 
one meal in the person of Christ that gives you sustainability before God and before man for all eternity. Can you believe it? It has to be said again. One meal in the person of Christ which gives you sustainability before God and before man for all eternity. In Christ alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck us from his hand. Okay, how? One answer. Because Jesus does his Father's will. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who set me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. Verse 45, do you see it there? Everyone has heard who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Right back to verse 34. Sir, they said, always give us this bread from now on. I mean, you understand that. Eternal life bread, bring it on. I want more. So right now, they, 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 they don't understand that Jesus is speaking about himself, not at verse 34. At this point, they think he's speaking of some bread that he's going to provide, and they want it now. They want the bread train to keep going. Very understandable. Do today what you did yesterday. You provide, we'll take. Jesus turns it on its head, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be Thirsty, so Jesus moves their mind from, from, uh, from temporary to the eternal, from the metaphor to actual reality. The key is me. That's what Jesus is saying. Believe on me. I am the bread of life. And if you believe me, I'll give you sustainability forever and ever. Verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. Now, just listen to me just for a moment, please. That's the same thing they say essentially in verse 42, verse 43, verse 52, verse 60, and verse 41. They grumble. They just can't get over this. They keep fighting his words. Don't don't give me none of this rest stuff and belief stuff. Give me work. That's how strong religious flesh is. I don't want to believe and rest. I'd rather work. Rather, in some way, be my own bread of life. Now, let's just walk through this. Verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now, if you're alert, verse 37 can be hard for people sometimes. Because it sounds on the surface as if, you know, Jesus is talking out of both sides of his mouth. If you're familiar with the term Calvinist and Arminiist, you understand what I'm saying. All the Father gives me will come. That sounds kind of Calvinistic. Uh, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That sounds kind of like a, ar- 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 I can't even say the word, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, both sides agree. God gives, whoever comes. Okay. Both sides agree about this. That this is what it's called a litotis. Okay. 
And a litotes is a figure of speech by which you affirm something by denying the opposite. Let me give you two examples. Someone says, how many people went to the party? And the answer is, not a few, which means what? A whole lot. If you watch the first first Avengers movie, there's a scene where Iron Man, literally this is true, Iron Man is helping to save the, the, the floating machine, and there's Captain America, and he's helping Iron Man, and Iron Man says, you know, look at that panel, and what's in it? And Captain America says, well, it seems to run on electricity. And you remember Iron Man's response? He says, well, you're not wrong. That's a litotis. In other words, yeah, okay, you're right. So when Jesus says in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, what does he mean? I mean, it's usually assumed he means I won't block them or I, I, I will invite them in. However, the expression, I will never drive away, is, is really saying, I'm going to keep them in. That's the conduct, context. I will keep them in. All the Father gives me will come to me, and I will keep them in. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose. None of those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. You get it? All the Father gives me will come to him, and he will keep them because he, he came to do his Father's will. And the Father's will is not to lose anyone the Father gives to the Son. In other words, Jesus is the only one who mediates God's life. So to us, he alone does the Father's will. Okay? Jesus is the only one who who mediates God's life to us because he alone does the Father's will. Human responsibility is there, absolutely. And God's sovereignty is there, absolutely. It's all over the chapter. But at the end of the day, it's so important that we understand to have this life from God. It rests in the first place on Jesus' obedience to the Father. The obedience of Jesus to come to earth, right? Here I am, I've come to do your will. The, The obedience of Jesus which took him to the cross. The obedience that sent him as a sacrifice for us. The obedience that keeps us so that we'll be never driven away. What Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying is us, you can trust me. I am trustworthy. And, and it's not just about trust in this life, but in the life to come. I will raise them up on the last day. All right? So if Jesus is the bread of life, it's important to see that the weight of all this, this, we'll call it this profound relationship between us and him, does not rest on us and him. It rests between the Father and Him. Again, please, the weight of all this promise does not rest on the relationship between us and Jesus, but will rest on the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So believe and rest. Look at your Bible. Jesus obeys His Father, verse 38, so you can believe and you can rest. He takes on the work the Father gives Him, verse 38, so you can believe and rest. He does the Father's will. Salvation. Believe and rest. Verse 39. It is as impossible for those the Father has given to the Son to lose their salvation than for Jesus to disobey the Father. Believe and rest. That Jesus can somehow fail his Father? That's not going to happen. Believe and rest. Will you and I fail Jesus? Stay awake and be worried. Verse 40. 
Jesus is the one who mediates God's life to us because he gives his life on our behalf. Believe and rest. Now let's just start drawing to a close. Verse 49. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the, for the life of the world. Now, now keep yourself in the context, right? Keep yourself in the context. In a world like that, everyone knew if you're going to eat, then something has to die. Whatever they ate had to be cut off from its source or had to be killed. If it doesn't die and we eat it, we'll die. That is understood by them. So what Jesus is saying here is, I am the living bread. You you are not the bread of your life. You eat this bread, you will live forever. This bread I will give you is for the life of the world. And notice he says, the bread is my flesh, and I'm going to give my flesh. What is he doing? It's pretty simple. He's leading them to the cross. In this bread metaphor, he's leading to the cross, and it's all over the rest of John. John 10, he is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. John, 11, John chapter 11, he is the one who dies so that the nation will live, right to the cross. John chapter 12, he is the corn of wheat which falls to the ground and dies. Here in chapter 6, he gives his flesh, his bread, his body, so that the world can be rescued. All of it just simply points to the cross. In the same way, we're going to take communion in just a moment. What does it say? What are we proclaiming? The Lord's death. Why? Because that's the only hope for eternal life. Believe. Rest. And we feed on Jesus as we trust in him because he died on our behalf, right? Bearing our sins in his body. Believe and rest. His righteousness is now imputed to us. Believe and rest. If you're not a Christian, ask for the bread. Ask for Jesus. And if you are a Christian, what does this passage do? It brings us back to the basics. All we have is from him. All we ever have will be from him. I have this quote in one of my books, the less I believe in me, the more I believe in thee. Believe. Joe, make me responsible for you. That's what Jesus said to me when he, when he changed me. Make me responsible for you, Joe. So, so this is not, you know, a nice guy trying to make you feel good this morning. This is divine truth. Two things that will be done. I don't think I'm wrong here, but by nature, when the new year begins, we're like, go, 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 right? I'm going to start this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be, it's going to be great. That's fine. That's our nature. But here, you know what Jesus is saying? Believe and rest, rest, rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I watched a lot of movies over the Christmas holiday. 
I watched one on Netflix, The Professor and the Madman. I'm not finished, so if you watch it, don't tell me the end. It is so good. I had to watch it like twice, the first part. I just love it. And if you know the story, there's a, a gentleman named William, William Minor. He, he's actually in jail, and he gets a letter from, from Sir James Murray. And James Murray was in charge, a true story, of actually uh, building the Oxford Dictionary. They've been tried and failed many times, so you're trying to put millions of words in a dictionary back in the 19th century. And so Murray sends out a letter. Anybody wants to help, help. Minor gets the letter. He's enthralled by it. And this is what he writes back. It's a letter of help. And he says, my work is to make your burdens light. As soon as I heard that, I stopped. I was watching on my iPhone. I stopped it. And I wrote this down. My work, says Jesus, is to make your burdens light. Okay, but make them gone. Gone. It is by grace alone through Christ alone, that we are never going to starve. He is responsible for us. Let's bow together, please. Thank you for your attention. And as you're bowing, just we're going to make ourselves ready for communion. So if you want to get your cup out and maybe just prep it up a little bit like I did, just to be ready. And as you're getting ready, I'm just going to read from the Bible. This is the words of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now let's, let's pray. Now remember, this, the meal is not for perfect people. This is for forgiven people. So, what qualifies you to take the bread and juice is to admit that you're completely unworthy of the bread and juice apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That you place your entire well-being into the hands of Christ, the bread of life. And if this is not you, then, then Christ certainly welcomes you even now. Okay, let's, let's pray. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones, to him belong. They are weak. I am weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells us so. Father, please forgive our sins especially as those sins that we commit that we are completely unaware of. And please destroy the work of the evil one in our lives and in your church, local and global. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the juice, which preaches the death of Jesus Christ to us. Thank you that you are so kind and you are so patient with us. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect obedience. Thank you for your gentle and humble heart. And thank you that with you there is real rest. Real rest. May we enjoy that rest as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.